Is American foreign policy broken? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sarah Burns. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Sarah Burns. Sarah is an assistant professor of political science at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Her research focuses on the intersection of political liberalization and American constitutional development. You can check out some other great material from her online, like some videos at Learn Liberty and a Reddit AMA. And she has a book out, just released this year, called The Politics of War Powers. Sarah, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Sarah, in each episode, we start with a question and just go wherever the answers and discussions lead us. So let's kick it right off, jump right in. Is American foreign policy broken? It's a big question and uh, both an easy and hard one to answer. So the short answer would be that, yes, it's somewhat broken. And it's broken because the separation of power system, as it's supposed to operate, is no longer operating effectively. Uh, That's not to say that uh, if, you know, Congress and the president um, actually did work together very effectively, that we would see nothing but excellent, sophisticated, impressive American foreign policy. But it would go a long way to improving the deliberation about uh, important questions associated with grand strategy in the United States. Would you like to get into some maybe few major pillars or elements of your train of thought? Then we can definitely drill down into each of them as needed. But like, what major aspects, in your view, make it like, quite frankly, broken, as we were saying? Yeah, so part of the difficulty for the United States is that uh, to use a to go a little bit farther back historically, When we get out of the Second World War, we see the major European powers have been hobbled by the war, you know, both financially and through their infrastructure. And so the U.S. then takes a very major role in the international sphere in guarding liberty and guarding liberal democracy against the looming and terrifying threat of communism and communistic expansion. So in that role, you then have to say, well, what is the United States supposed to do? Right? And so the United States then takes up the mantle of essentially being the world police. Now, we could make the claim that the United States is the first one to do this, but really we see the British and to a certain extent the European empires uh, acting in this role prior to uh, the mid-20th century. So this isn't a novel uh, assertion of power or assertion of international power. It's just novel for the United States that started, remember, as like a tiny little (laughs) scrappy colony that's like arguably an insurgency, right? That all of a sudden somehow beat the biggest empire and the biggest uh, forces in in the world. And so when you get to the mid-20th century, then the U.S. says, all right, we'll take up this role. And they establish all sorts of um, international organizations like the U.N. and and NATO in order to um, create these alliances and say to our European allies and even you know China and, and the Russians or the USSR at the time, we're going to build this whole coalition where we're all going to be friendly and, and kind and you know not harm each other anymore because of the horrors of the war. That obviously worked out very badly, very quickly. <laughs> so um, because the USSR had very different intentions and the United States saw those different intentions, the U.S. started moving towards militarized containment. So uh, when we when we think about communism, we think about the idea that uh, liberal democracy and communism can't coexist. So because they can't coexist, each of them says, well, I am the last form of government, right? And because I'm the last form of government, then I have to liberate, quote unquote, the other form so that they can come over to my side. Now, as we see country after country, especially in in Asia and Central Asia, falling to communism, then the U.S. starts thinking the only way that we can deal with this problem is to militarize the containment of um, the Soviet Union so and, and communism more, more broadly. In doing so, you then see this huge explosion of military expenditure, this huge explosion of um, military personnel, and then a an acceptance among the public in the United States that this is now our role. And so we have to become the world police through military might, right? So we're not going to use diplomatic means entirely. We're not just going to, you know, talk to our allies and talk to our partners and enemies. We're going to actually use military force. And this then gets us into the uh, the complicated Korean war, obviously the disastrous war in Vietnam, and then so when you get to the 20th century or the end of the 20th century and you think to yourself, oh, great, like the USSR is dead. 
So the the U.S. military can uh, draw down, we can have uh, less of a world police, and we can have a more integrated international community now that the quote-unquote threat of communism has has died. Because keep in mind, at this point, we don't have China really becoming this huge power that it is today. And the problem with state building in general that then um, the U.S. fell victim to as well is that once you have this giant military uh, infrastructure, and once you have you know, states relying on bases and senators relying on these bases staying open to get reelected and the whole structure kind of working together, it's very hard to draw down. So we don't see in the 90s a really dramatic reduction in defense spending, um, U.S. military operations, all of these kinds of things. Instead, it just continues. And obviously, then the war on terror acts like a, um, a shot of adrenaline to the entire system. Now, as this is going on, not only do we see this expansion of military power, but we also see the president being increasingly the one who's in charge of everything. And so in being in charge of all of this, he's not sharing power with Congress, which also means he's not talking to Congress about operations. So we have this increasingly large military that's being controlled increasingly by one branch of government. And that's not at all how the separation of power system is supposed to work. And that's why it is that we have very reactionary foreign policy today, where we see, especially in the Middle East and North Africa, you know, one administration after another kind of bouncing back and forth between different policy operations without really having a good sense of uh, a longer term, bigger picture of what we're trying to do. That That's a great way to kick everything off. And it occurs to me that uh, based on a few things you mentioned in there, that if we pause on sort of the um, 20th century uh, history and backdrop for a second and maybe drill a bit deeper into what you just mentioned, which is separation of powers and, and the way that the Constitution is actually structured, let's do some stage setting with that as well. So as I said, let's take a pause there for a second, talk about, okay, Shifting gears, ideally, how was this really supposed to look? Yeah, if you go back to the Madisonian ideal, right? So James Madison, obviously, is not the only founder, but he's the one who was the arguably the most thoughtful and the most engaged with thinking through how to create a constitution and how to create all of these structures. And what he said is, you know, when we're creating this um, grand experiment, we don't know if it's going to work. So what we're going to do is we're going to think about the nature of different powers, right? So we know the separation of powers means that you separate out the legislative branch from the executive branch and the judiciary. So when you're thinking about how to do that, you then have to think about the nature of each of the powers. So with the legislative power, what you fairly intuitively want is a, a body that's going to create laws and then pass them, right? And so that's, again, fairly intuitive, um, but what you want to then think about is what kind of body would best be able to do that. And what you really want when you're passing laws is to think about what public opinion would say and to think about what, in this case, Americans would want. And so that means that you want a lot of people from different regions to all come together and discuss what those different constituents want. So insofar as you want regional interests represented, you also want different kinds of professions represented and um, different groups represented. So you want a diversity of individuals from all these different places, from lots of different backgrounds. So great. So that's the way that we want that structured, which means we want to have a lot of people talking to each other who don't necessarily agree. Right. And that's what leads to very good deliberation about what's in the public interest and in theory then distills down what's actually in the public interest rather than some sort of emotional sense that the people are feeling. Right. So if they're scared or angry, right, you want to take those things out of the laws and you want to say, all right, you know, we've been attacked or there's some sort of threat or we're concerned. So we want the legislature to think through what's what's a reasonable response to that rather than just saying like the bad guy's got a gun you know shoot him don't ask questions right right so that's what we're expecting the legislative branch to do conversely what we want from the executive branch is speedy decisions and execution right so we don't want this person kind of deliberating and sitting around saying you know do people in the west feel the same way as people in the south like well let's think it through and have lengthy conversations so that's a very different thing because that's a very different task you want that to be done by a very different kind of body so in other words while you want lots of people from lots of places in the legislative branch you want one person being very decisive in the executive branch. And finally, in the judicial branch, what you want is for them to be very removed from politics. 
So there was a lot of focus on this at the American founding because they really wanted to ensure that any sort of political views that the judges might have wasn't at all going to be part of how they were interpreting the law. So what you want there is you want a group of people smaller than the legislative branch and not necessarily representative of the country, because what you want are people with the the biggest law brains that there are, right? The people who know the most and can think through what the law says and then interpret what the law means. So they're not making law or deciding what uh, is best for the country. They're just saying the Constitution says this. These statutes say this other thing, and it goes against the Constitution, therefore we have to overrule those statutes, right? So that's judicial review. And all of those branches work very well together because they're slightly overlapping. And what you really want there is to have the two political branches, the legislative and executive branches, working together, not in harmony, because they're not supposed to be harmonious. They're supposed to be working in tandem, which means that each branch is going to really, really guard its powers. And by guarding its powers, it's going to ensure that the other branch both doesn't encroach on its powers, but also ensure that the other branch is doing its job effectively. Right. So we we want the executive branch to say to the legislature, look, we need these new laws, like let's get things going. And we want the legislature to kind of slow things down and say, like, we don't need stuff right now. You know, like we're still talking about it. We're still deliberating. But you want the executive kind of lighting a fire under the legislative branch. And similarly, you want the legislature, when the executive is just going too far, going too fast, you want the legislature to say, like, no, 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 come back. Don't don't move so quickly. The country's not ready for the changes that you're implementing or, you know, you reacted too strongly to an attack, like, say, the reaction to 9-11. You want the legislative branch to pull the executive back. Finally, you want the judicial branch to act as kind of a backstop to both of these things, right? So in the Federalist Papers, which is an explanation of the American Constitution, they say the judiciary has neither purse nor sword, right? So the legislative branch has the purse, executive branch has the sword, and the judiciary sits quietly in the background and really shouldn't be a focus of our attention for the most part, because they're just sitting there, you know, interpreting laws in their big black robes and you know, quietly making decisions associated with the Constitution. And so those things should all work together very effectively to ensure that when foreign policy decisions are made that aren't actually in the best interest of the country, all three branches get alerted and um, reassess their roles, right? And reassess whether or not someone overstepped, whether or not they had a good policy in the first place. And so that's how the Madisonian system is supposed to function. And I think that provides an excellent uh, overall picture of how these are all supposed to work, to, as you said, in tandem rather than in complete coordination all the time. But um, now let's get a bit into the, some of the specifics of each powers that each specific branch is supposed to have delegated to them it's in, in this uh, structure and ex- exactly how, how that interplay looks like and, and how that would ultimately or I should say how that is supposed to affect the way foreign policy is conducted. Great question. When we look at what's called the formal powers, which is the constitutional powers of each of the branches, in the realm of foreign policy, the judiciary kind of, again, stays in the background. So it's really the political branches that have the most power. Uh, This is especially true because what they're supposed to be doing, as I sort of said, is they're supposed to be fighting, right? They're supposed to be saying, no, 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 I want to control foreign policy. No, I want to control foreign policy. All right, let's work together and get something done. So you can liken them if you want to, you know, bickering uh, siblings, right? So they, they ultimately want to play together and work together, but there's some friction there and there's supposed to be some friction there. And they did that in part by overlapping the powers. So if you look at the formal division, you see the legislature has, as I mentioned, the power of the purse, meaning that they're the ones who decide when the money gets spent and how the money gets spent. So in the realm of uh, military affairs and foreign policy, that means that uh, every year or two, they have to review the budget and uh, renew the budget or change the budget. And then there's some smaller level powers, things like controlling or defining piracy on the high seas, um, defining what kinds of um, actions are illegal uh, on on land and in the high seas. So those to a lot of legal scholars look like they have control over smaller scale operations. And so a lot of legal scholars over (laughs) years and years and years started looking into this and saying, no, if we're looking at the original intent, that's the original intent is to give Congress the the power over smaller scale operations. Then you obviously get to uh, the power to declare war. And so in a plain reading of the Constitution, that even, you know, my 
um, undergraduate students can see, if you think about how it is that American military operations have gone over the over two centuries that the U.S. has has been around, you see that we only have five declared wars. And so comparatively, everyone can kind of think by themselves. I mentioned already Korea, Vietnam. We know, obviously, of the Iraq and Afghan war. You know, those are just four examples where we have war. We have a clear indication of war, but we have no declaration of war. And so what we've seen then is Congress kind of moving away from these formal declarations of war. So next, when you look at the executive power, what the executive has done in the formal powers, we have two or three really important powers. First, you have the vesting clause, which says that the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States. So what this means is there's ambiguity in what what that formal power or formal uh, vesting entails. Does that just mean that the president carries out the laws that the legislature has passed? Uh, Does he have interpretive powers over those laws? Or is there something even bigger than that and broader than that, that allows him to uh, defend the country, even if there's no imminent attack, right? And so these questions have been sort of knocking around in American brains, especially presidential brains, for a long time. Uh, Next is the take care clause. And this says that he shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Now, some presidents have then interpreted that to mean if there is some kind of breach in the legal process, they have to take over. They have to do something in order to ensure that things work out the right way. And if you look at, say, Lincoln's reaction to the the Civil War, the uprising of the South, what he said was they're not paying taxes, so I have to (laughs) make sure that they're paying taxes. And so I'm, you know, using the take care clause to ensure that that's happening. Then you get into the the meteor powers like the commander in chief power. And if you look at the commander in chief power in the way it's interpreted in America, that requires civilian control over all of the military. There are limitations on this, but the president of the United States really could call up the joint chiefs tomorrow and say, you know what, I would like to bomb Bolivia. And because the military is very used to civilian control and very much values civilian control, they would essentially say, sir, yes, sir, we'll have a a plan for you in the next few hours. And so that gives him an incredible amount of unilateral space when it comes to foreign policy. Um, Then you have things that are much more dangerous, like the creation of executive orders or the executive agreements. And executive orders tend to have an effect domestically. So they used to be fairly innocuous. They would be used for things like um, creating national parks, I guess, unless people find that uh, <laughs> dangerous. But you know, we, have to protect, we have to protect the moose and the bears. Recently, as we've seen under Trump and seen under Obama, they've been used for much more expansive things. So Obama used it to try and protect dreamers or the people who came here as children who are illegals. And then Trump recently used executive orders to uh, pull, uh, unilaterally pull U.S. forces out of uh, Syria and, uh, you know, allowed the Kurds to now be um, threatened very significantly by Turkey. So they have a significant amount of power through executive orders. And so those are the formal divisions of power. So those those being the formal divisions, let's, let's get into things I know you've either written about and certainly talked about as well, which is over time, how have these formal divisions really given way to, I guess you could say, informal arrangements between all these these branches? That is to say, okay, that's fine. That's what's on paper and definitely in the Constitution, what it was intended to be like, what's really going on when we take a look at these branches? And, and as I said, how, what's informally really occurring here? So we move from the formal constitutional system starting in the Cold War because we have this incredibly new situation. First, we are now again a superpower we're up against this terrifying other superpower that thinks we should be destroyed. And finally, we both have nuclear weapons. And so that means that both of these powers that want to destroy the other could destroy the entire planet several times over. Right. And can, and can do so very, very quickly, right? Um, to give a sense of how quickly that happens, almost since the, the creation of nuclear weapons, we've had what's called the football, which follows around the president. And the football is literally the nuclear codes. So there's always a person following the president at all times with the nuclear codes, which means that 
Trump at any time at any of his golf courses could initiate a nuclear attack because he always has the nuclear codes with him. And so again, the, the level of destructiveness that this allows for and the speed with which it allows that destruction cause people in both branches to think we have to give the president enough uh, nimbleness in order to react if something, if a nuclear attack hits us or if we need to launch a nuclear attack. So that's when Congress started really just letting go of its powers. And very fascinating to me in my book, I, I explore how it is that we pass U the UN and NATO treaties and in both of these instances, what we see is Congress not realizing at all that in passing these treaties, what they're doing is creating a super sovereignty. Namely, they're creating an international organization that could sanction military operations without the president having to go to Congress. So just, just to pin this down to a certain time frame as well, just to make sure I understand as well as the listeners do. So you're talking, these things start happening directly after World War II, like right into the, right as soon as the nuclear age started, basically powers like this start shifting towards the executive branch. Yes. Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's very true that mostly what happens when you look at military history is after a big war, like World War II, you see a big drawdown of forces. But because we were in the Pacific theater into the mid 1940s, and then we were occupying both Germany and Korea, you don't see that same drawdown. So in 1950, I think it was April, maybe May of 1950, when the Soviets got the nuclear bomb, that's when the United States said, oh my God, what are we going to do? We need to have a nimbleness because now they are a nuclear power just like us. So that's you know, within half a decade of the end of, of the war. And on from there, like I'm sure like there were other situations that created um, or other circumstances, other institutional pressures that started pushing more and more uh, power into the executive branch. So the, the nuclear situation is definitely one of them. So and any I know we're, we're certainly you and I not going to within this hour go down every single thing. Right. But but, like you know, at, at a high level, key points. So we definitely have, have the nuclear situation. Any others off the top of your head as major considerations? Maybe sp were they specific uh, foreign affairs events or is it just other sort of weaponry, for instance, that was in the possession of the military? Like what other key things, I guess, are part of this equation? Another key point to consider is the concept of the domino effect. This was a key aspect of American foreign policy, which was that anytime you had a country fall to communism, then you had to ensure that countries near it also didn't fall as if they were all dominoes. And so this is partially why we see the the war in Korea being started unilaterally by Truman. So he didn't get congressional authorization for the war that started in 1950, right? So we, we have the creation of the UN in 1949. A year later, we have already a war. Um, then you also have the increased operations of the CIA, because as we know, we wanted to keep the war cold. We didn't want to have the war heat up. So that meant that you have all the covert ops that are going on all over the world. And we have this shady organization that's engaging in all these things, supporting dictators, taking dictators down, siphoning weaponry to all sorts of people all over the place. And they're doing this in part in response to what the Soviets are doing in the exact same way, right? So we have Americans and the Soviets meddling in all these different places. And in some cases, like indirectly supporting other militias or military apparatuses as well, correct? Like, I mean, yes, like yes. That, which could involve like something as, quote, simple as, as weaponry right down to like other, other kinds of, of aid they can give to these certain countries or certain forces as well. Yes. And it's also the case. So what you see, part of the reason why it then concentrates in the executive branch is because not only do you have by nature uh, the capacity to act quickly, but you also have secrecy, right? It's a lot easier to keep secrets in the executive branch than it is in a house of, or two houses of, you know, 535 people. Right, right. So that allowed the executive to say, don't worry about these covert ops, Congress. I've got it handled. You know, I'm not going to you know, push the button. They're not going to push the button. We've got the big war handled. I'm also dealing with the smaller scale things to ensure that liberal democracy, as we know it, is, you know, flourishing internationally. And sure, we're supporting some dictators here or there, but right. they're, you know, they're not friends with the communists. So that's got to be better somehow. Mm -hmm. And they're certainly avoiding uh, anyone 
terming all of this action, no matter what it is, in any serious way, a quote war or an official conflict, right? This is always, this is never, as you were saying before, ever officially declared as military action. It's just either covert operations, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And even, you know, diplomatic relations, quote unquote, with a variety of different countries internationally. Right, right. So yeah, so the, the necessity or the the seeming necessity of covert ops, the concern about the domino effect, the need for nimbleness in foreign policy to ensure that if the Soviets launched a nuclear weapon and tried to annihilate the entire country, that there would be one person who was in charge to ensure that didn't happen. So if you think about all of these different ways, it made it very, very easy for presidents to make the case to Congress that they should be really in charge of everything. And it made it very, very easy for Congress to say, Yes, you should. Go go ahead. We're all afraid and we all don't want to die. Right. And politically, I think you say this in one of your one of your talks or at least touch on it, that Congress just functionally, whether like putting value judgments aside, found it a lot easier to go along with some of these things and either say yay or nay later if it was politically fashionable either way, rather than get involved or to prevent something as it was happening or start meddling in the executive branch's business. Yes, that's that's entirely true that the other problem with the legislative power is that getting a whole bunch of people from all sorts of different places with all sorts of different interests to get along, have a conversation and agree to something is incredibly difficult. So conversely, if they just allow the president to enjoy his first mover advantage and engage in an operation or avoid an operation, they can then sit on the sidelines and say, you know, you should have acted quicker or you shouldn't have acted at all. And then they can hold some hearings, which does hold presidents to account. So I don't want to say that there's no accountability and presidents are just running around the world. But in holding them accountable, they're doing so after the fact. Right. right? And so the the number of um, long term impacts that occur because of something we've done, I think, you know, even for for those of us and your listeners who have been experiencing the last 20 years, it's very clear that operations that that were initiated in 2001, 2003 have huge knock-on effects nearly 20 years later. And and I guess uh, as well, there's probably also the, the other political motivation going on in the background, which is that, and I'm talking strictly on party lines here, that like, let's say the Republicans are in power and the Democrats aren't, they certainly aren't going to complain if, quote, their guy has these sets of powers when they get into the executive branch either, because of course the assumption is when their person does get in, of course it'll be used in a way that works for them. So I mean, there's there's also probably that political disincentive to not go too crazy and and uh, uh, you know criticize the, the the structure of the powers. Obviously, there's going to been exceptions throughout congressional history and people that have brought certain things up, but largely speaking, uh, I don't think over the past many decades there's been serious outcries about the the overall system for, for certain reasons. Yes, that's entirely true that in involved in this very complicated picture that I'm trying to paint, you also have to remember that partisanship is getting stronger and stronger and polarization is getting stronger and stronger. Right. And so what you then start to see is a real shirts and skins situation where Republicans will not wholeheartedly support everything that a Republican president will do, but they're much more supportive. And similarly, Democrats are much more supportive of whatever Democratic presidents want to do. And then vice versa, you have just dramatic critiques from Democrats of Republican presidents and dramatic critiques of, you know, from Republicans of Democratic presidents. And it, it makes it very hard for anyone to you know, deeply assess the validity of a certain policy and the the way in which they're trying to put that policy into action. Right. Because everyone's just saying, I want to score points for my side rather than figure out what's the best uh, foreign policy for the United States in a given situation. And if anyone wants to see an illustration of that, you can just go look at like some sort of mainstream news clip from the 80s or something when they have both experts on, which I've actually done just to see. And it's like, it's often exactly as you describe sort of thing, like yeah. when, depending on who's in power at the time or what party has has more leverage over the political system. Uh, there's certainly sharp condemnation on the people that don't have from the people that don't have it and then vice versa when it's their turn, right? Yeah, there's also just my favorite term for Congress is calling them supine, which means that they're too morally weak to to engage. And my favorite quote on this is from a a Republican congressman named Jack Kingston, who, uh, when they were talking about whether or not Obama should bomb Syria in 2014, so this is when ISIS has has shown up and everyone's sort of like, oh, look, there's some other negative effect from pulling out of Iraq. Uh, So he said, uh, again, it was an election year, so it was leading up to the midterm election in 2014. He said, 
a lot of people would like to stay on the sidelines and say, just bomb the place and tell us about it later. It's an election year. A lot of Democrats don't know how it would play in their party, and Republicans don't want to change anything. We like the path we're on now. We can denounce it if it goes bad and praise it if it goes well and ask what took him so long. Polit- politically, a win-win-win, right? That's exactly. Also, right. It's a, perfect, it's a perfect way to go forward. It's just inaction. So what, they, what Congress has done, besides become more and more polarized, is just completely deny their constitutional responsibility to engage with whether or not we should be engaging in military operations and the scope and duration of these military operations in general. So so uh, throughout many decades, let's say from the, the post-World War II uh, phase and, and onwards, basically there's, if I'm understanding everything you're saying correctly, there's been this combination of power being taken away from Congress and pushed into the executive branch, but on the other side, sometimes happily given up or at least without a fight. What was so hard for me when I was writing my book is that I couldn't understand what was happening and why we were having bad policy after bad policy and silly war after poorly thought out war. And so the problem, if you're looking at the constitutional system that I described, the, you know, the, the political branches working together, the judiciary kind of being a backstop of saying like, hey guys, you know, you're going in the wrong direction. The constitutional system can handle one branch encroaching on the other. It's, it's designed for that. It's designed to say, okay, institutionally, I'm going to try and take these legislative powers from the executive branch. Right. And, and similarly, the, the legislature is going to try and take executive powers. What it's not designed to do is deal with one of the branches just giving over their powers. Right, exactly, yeah. I mean, the separation of powers implies that the idea is there's a balance that's at least hoped for, as opposed to a separation and an unbalance. That, that's pretty useless. So. Yes, exactly. And so it, it you know, <laughs> I think the conclusion of my book is essentially like, what's going on, Congress? Why are you, why do you keep giving over your powers? And there's a variety of reasons, but it does seem as if, you know, if we want to try and fix the brokenness of American foreign policy, a big aspect of that would be ensuring that Congress takes up its constitutional role and does try and engage. And I, and I think that's actually an excellent spot to take a break. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task here, and I'm chatting with Sarah Burns. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Travis Smith, Vincent Geloso, and Andy Crooks. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm chatting with Sarah Burns. Sarah, before the break, we were sort of providing a general backdrop uh, uh, to executive power, a bit of the history of how a lot of power uh, has shifted to the executive branch. Uh, Before we leave that topic, I want to talk a bit about uh, terrorism. So a lot of what we discussed sort of covers a lot of the Cold War era. You mentioned things like the Korean War, the Vietnam War. Um, Even if a lot of this, a lot of these conflicts were not officially declared wars or or officially um, processed military actions, ultimately, like you said, there's still perception like that was sort of an open and shut conflict, right? We talk about it like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, et cetera. How have all the things we've been talking about today been affected by the shift from, quote, wars to fighting what's been termed as global terrorism, right? So that's the post 9-11 era, I would guess. Uh, It's not to say that terrorism wasn't a problem before, but certainly after 9-11, there was this whole, uh, like at least coined by George Bush, right? We're on on a crusade against terrorism. So how does does everything we've been talking about once again get affected by uh, the change in what the quote enemy is and how the enemy is defined? It's a great question. And uh, it's something we've been dealing with for almost two decades now. And if you look at the future, even when I talk to my students, I, I don't want to reassure them that in their lifetime we'll see uh, what George Bush promised in 2000, uh, maybe one or two. He said that we will see an end of terrorism. So in 2002, George W. Bush promised essentially the American people and the international community that America was going to go all over the globe, seek out every terrorist cell everywhere, and destroy them completely. And he, he, he said this in a way that left it to interpretation that, you know, could he go into Germany and uh, fight a terrorist cell there? Could he go into England and fight a cell there? Could he invade Canada and say that, 
you know, they have uh, too loose security. And so for the protection of America, we have to invade. There were lots of countries that were very hot under the collar after this thinking, you know, we're, we're sympathetic America, we understand what's happening, but you're really pushing the boundaries of what we can consider a reasonable response to this. That's especially true because um, with something like the Vietnam War, with something like the Korean War, we have a return address, right? So we we have someone who we're saying, you know, in those situations, it's, well, let's let's go with an easier war in World War II, right? Everyone can think badly of World War II. Everyone can think badly of um, what Germany did there. So we know who the bad guy is. We know that it's essentially Germany and Japan. There's other people involved, but we know those two guys are the bad guys. And it's a very black and white situation, right? We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We have to do everything we can to, to fight them. And we know where they live. So we just have to go there and um, defeat those people in that territory and then game over, right? And so the presumption is then you win and you go home. With terrorism, because there is no return address, because there's this international scope, and because it's a stateless scope, then there's no one that we can harm. There's no country where we can go to and say, all right, we're going to fight here until this threat is diminished or eliminated. You're fighting a concept ultimately, right? Because if you look up what terrorism is in the dictionary, it doesn't say, uh, you know, found specifically in X country. <laughs> you know, it's it's Perfect, it's, yeah. a, it's a concept is what we're is right. what And George Bush even said, well, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Very broad. Yes. Well, and so, yeah, and so dichotomous, right? So he's he's using this black and white language that, again, worked in World War II. You could argue it's more complicated, but you can argue it worked in the Cold War. But it doesn't work when you have one country that, let's say, embodies a certain ideology, but is one place. And they're fighting this, this concept, right? They're fighting the idea of radical Islam. They're fighting the idea of fighting back against what I would call the liberal world order, right? Because ultimately, if you look at... Um, people like terrorists, what they're doing is they're violently reacting to a very, very changed world that's globalized, that's integrated, that doesn't seem to them to have space for what they want. So in reacting against the these big Western powers that are kind of global police, they don't have the capacity, right? Terrorist cells don't have the capacity to stand up and stand against the American army and say, I'm going to fight you on land, at sea, in the air. What they have to do is use these tactics that are associated with terrorism, right? So they have to create fear in the in the people. They have to um, hit civilian targets and do all sorts of horrible things. And the problem is that because they're fighting for a cause rather than a country, we can never eliminate that cause. Or somehow guess when new causes are going to surface and then, you know, eliminate their, them before they happen or like, you know, nip it in the bud, so to speak, right? So this is the problem with this terrorism thing, to eliminate terrorism is uh, is like is is in sort of a way like you're saying we're, we're going to um eliminate I'm just trying to think of a different example eliminate people being violent against each other or or you know something like that i mean maybe there's there's ways to approach that but certainly as as we were saying it's ultimately a concept is what we're talking about here yes exactly and on top of that this is the the worst or on top of being a concept on top of one place or one military trying to fight a concept which is again already elusive by fighting the concept, you're then proving the concept to other people. So you have radical Islam saying to people, you know, America is invading us, they're taking over our land, they're making our government secular in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. We have to fight back against the secularizing power, we have to fight back against them and the secular governments they support. And lots of people in a variety of countries said no. We don't, you know, maybe we don't like that there's a lot of American uh, military in Saudi Arabia, for example, but it's not negatively impacting my life very dramatically. Whereas once you have the Afghan and Iraqi war, this is dramatically impacting all sorts of people's lives. And so it's much easier then for radical Islamists to say, you know, your brother was killed in this conflict and he was just, you know, in the marketplace where they they were bombing because they thought there were a lot of targets there. 
Right. And then you get into a situation as well where what people see, even if there's some internal and domestic issues between terrorism and the local government and the local police force, I'm not minimizing it, but I'm saying on a relative scale, a bomb may go off in a market and kill 20 people, which is, of course, terrible. But then you contrast that with Desert Storm tanks rolling into your village and flattening buildings. As you were saying, then <laughs> it's sort of this, uh, in a certain way, enforcing the case. At least that's what people perceive of what a lot of these terrorist groups or or certain extremist groups are saying as well. Yes. Um, and I'm just going to add this thing in because I just read it today that talks about how it is that Americans right after 9-11 were kind of conceptualizing the fight. And so this is written by a, a, a scholar named Jack Goldsmith. He's currently at uh, Harvard. So, you know, an obscure university, but, um, you know, some people have heard of it. I, um, I think it rings a bell. So he's talking about, so he's talking about how they're trying to stop terrorism, right? So this is right after 9-11. And he's at this at the time working in the Bush administration. And so he was talking to someone who is named Jim Baker. And Jim Baker uh, analogizes the ta- task of stopping the enemy to a goalie in a soccer game who must stop every shot for the enemy wins if it scores a single goal. So in other words, if there's any more terrorist attack after 9-11, they win. Uh, the problem, Baker says, is that the goalie can't see the ball. It is invisible. So are the players. He doesn't know how many there are or where they are or what they look like. He also doesn't know where the sidelines are. They are blurry and constantly shifting, as are the rules of the game itself. The invisible players might shoot the invisible weapon from the front of the goal, from the back, from some other direction. The goalie doesn't know. And so this was the mentality that you see in the initial stages of the war on terror is that there was such a concern that any other threats might happen. And again, if we then relate it to the the concentration of power in the executive, the executive branch was sure that they were the ones who were responsible. And so if anything else happened, Congress, the people, the courts, all of them were saying to the executive branch, this is on you. You have to keep us safe. That's your job. That's your biggest job. And so we see, therefore, this, like I said, Manichaean um, language where it's like, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, we'll fight them everywhere, we'll find them everywhere, we'll get rid of it. And 20 years on, because there's no deliberative capacity, because no one really thought about you know, the policy of destroying all of terrorism and how to operationalize that effectively, we have a forever war at this point. Right. And, and on that note, then, quote, terrorism becomes the justification for everything, right? Whether it be a certain, um, you know, foreign affairs issue or even domestic policy, like spying on everyone with the NSA, like this becomes sort of the backdrop and filter that everything is put through in a lot of the, the federal government, namely the executive branches, whoever's in power narrative in the United States is that, you know, this is because of terrorism, keeping people safe or whatever security more broadly, whatever it may be. Yes. Yes, exactly. It makes it very easy for them to do all sorts of things in the name of keeping us safe that we aren't necessarily consenting to or we don't necessarily think are in our best interests. And they're doing so very secretively and away from any kind of oversight, really, from Congress, the public, the courts. So it's very disconcerting to to know that we don't know all the things that the executive branch is is doing in the name of keeping everyone safe. Right. And, and I think that's a great place to, to shift gears over to a few a few specific examples that you do uh, talks about and write about uh, as our time does wind down here. I did, definitely wanted to get some specific examples of things like that we've just been referring to uh, specific ways that the executive branch has used its powers now that we've provided a great backdrop about what's generally going on. So so one thing you you are comfortable uh, really talking about is the, the global assassination campaign effectively that that's existed under George Bush, but definitely a huge problem under under Barack Obama. So maybe we can get a little bit into that and we can tie everything together with that specific example. Yeah, drone warfare is it drone warfare is a really important aspect of American foreign policy and a very complicated one. Because on a certain level, it's a very effective tool. It keeps Americans fairly safe. It is able to gather a great deal of information in a way that you couldn't gather if you had a pilot operating these drones. It's able to effectively destroy a target that's very, very precise. And in theory, that's what we would want, right? We just want the one uh, terrorist group or group of people who are terrorists who are driving along the road to be destroyed rather than having a ground operation that puts all these people at risk and potentially puts civilians at risk and all these kinds of things. So there's elements to the drone warfare system that are very beneficial for 
decreasing casualties and increasing effectiveness. The difficulty is you also then create within the minds of people who are under the surveillance of drones and potentially being harmed by drones or seeing people harmed by drones, you get the sense that America is uh, an untouchable empire that won't even deign to put its people in harm's way. And so therefore you can't, as let's say an honorable individual, fight back in some sort of meaningful way because these drones are too far above your head for you to even you know, try and shoot them down or use any kind of weaponry to, to engage with them. And so this creates this really huge dichotomy between how people are feeling about it on the ground and how the United States is using it. And you're, you're right that it was used under George W. Bush. We do know a decent amount about drone strikes under both Bush and Obama, but they keep a lot to themselves. So we don't know uh, why they target certain individuals. We don't know how many casualties for sure come along with that. We don't know the ages and you know sex and race of the people who are casualties or are the targets. And this started to a certain extent under Bush, but it was industrialized under Obama. So this is in part because of technological innovation. So there were just better drones by the time Obama came along. But it's also true that where Bush was fairly comfortable using the military in a fairly open way, because he got authorizations from Congress and because people were generally on his side for a while in what he was trying to do, which is, you know, kill all the terrorists. By the time Obama gets into office, he had come in saying he's not going to have these big, long, forever wars, and he's not going to use the military. The problem was terrorism hadn't gone away, and the problem of terrorist cells wasn't really diminishing. We had diminished al-Qaeda very significantly, but other terrorist cells were were blossoming in their in their wake. So because Obama couldn't really work with Congress very effectively, but he could work very effectively with the CIA, so again, referencing back the fact that the executive can be very secretive right. and can use, you know, all these like dark forces that operate in the shadows. Uh, Obama really militarized the CIA and made the CIA the focal point of a lot of the military operations. So like an, an extension of the military, but not under the same checks and balances. Precisely, which is very, very problematic because if you look at the way in which the military engages in drone strikes, there are many, many, many more checks. And you have to have a much higher level of certainty. Whereas in the CIA, they have a much lower level of certainty required, and a much, much, much lower level of scrutiny. Even if we wanted to determine the validity of the strikes that they're engaged in, it's very, very hard, and they make it purposely hard. And that's part of what Obama liked, is that he could have all the secrecy and because of that, because of all the secrecy, he was able to even further decimate the Al-Qaeda network and destroy a great deal of very high-level targets and make it very, very hard for Al-Qaeda especially to, to rebuild. But now we have this new and terrifying beast of, of ISIS, which is a, a complicated amalgam of a variety of things. But it is kind of like the super bacteria, right, that, that came out of trying to kill the bacteria. Right. And so if you look at drone warfare today it's kind of like the new Guantanamo Bay. So Guantanamo Bay used to be a very good recruiting tool for terrorists. Now drone strikes, the effects of drone strikes, seeing the effects in your communities, that's a very, very effective recruiting tool in 2019. I forget if this was in one of your presentations or some of the notes I read from you, but uh, but I definitely read somewhere, it may have been a New York Times article, that even Obama quipped at some point during his presidency, I forget what the exact quote is, but it's something along the lines of like, oh, I'm getting pretty good at this thing, basically, which is ultimately getting a list of people on his desk on a certain day of the week and kind of you know, looking at them like basically like like mug shots, right? Just on a piece of paper and go, I guess we're killing these three people this week, right? So that that like you said, it just became this like run run of the mill thing that the the, the executive does at that point, which is pretty scary. It, it is essentially assassinating people, and it's doing so using an unmanned vehicle almost anywhere in the world, invading sovereignty of a variety of countries without much concern as to whether or not this negatively impacts domestic policy in these countries or any of these things, we're just mostly focused on whether or not they're a high enough value target. And we're reasonably sure that the person we're hitting is the person that we're supposed to be hitting. And I suppose in, in the absence of an official declaration of war or like an actual formal sort of conflict, as you said, we're talking about terrorism as a concept here. And there's yeah. we're not really governed by what we're agreed upon as 
what we can say is like the rules and and uh, formalities of war. Ultimately, this is all presumptions of guilt on the part of an, an executive branch, and then they're they're blowing people up. I guess right. That's what they're doing. Like you said, they're assassinating people. I I would say at least in my value judgments, that's the proper way to look at it. They're they're killing people. They're not fighting a war at that point. Yes, and and so one can I'll say this very delicately. One can understand how if you come upon a destroyed vehicle that has been uh, bombed from a drone, you don't know who is in that vehicle. You don't know if they've done anything wrong. You don't know who may have been a victim in that vehicle because they just happen to be with that individual. And all you know is that there is this omnipresent power that can decide as it sees fit when to destroy any human life almost anywhere in the world few other specific examples I want to get into, but I, I, don't, I definitely want to, don't want to go too over time. I want to make sure all of this makes it to actual publications so I don't have to chop anything out. So I, I'd like to shift gears over to uh, what you would view as solutions. That is to say, uh-huh. like, okay, so we've I think we've done a great job this episode at exploring uh, a bit about how we got here and what's happening now and defi- definitely giving one illust- specific illustration, which is the drone warfare, you know, as a culmination of executive power, spe- specifically unchecked executive of power. What's the solution? Is it that Congress tries to claw back some of this power? Is it just any way people can get more oversight on the system? Where do we go from here? That's a much like is American foreign policy broken? It's a very, <laughs> it's a very big question. Yeah, yeah, I, d- I definitely don't intend to start another two hours of conversation here. So I'm sorry about that. So just like, if you can do your best to sort of cover that, I guess at a high sure. level. No, that's, that's a very good question. Domestically, there's a few things that I could see as solutions. One is, uh, as you mentioned, Congress clawing back some of these powers. And so one of the ways that you could have that happen is if you, um, demilitarize the CIA. And it's not that that would be quick or or easy, but you can easily say that we don't want these kinds of things happening in the shadows. I think you can easily get bipartisan support, so Democrats and Republicans saying, we really want the military carrying this out in an above-board way rather than having the CIA really militarized, right? So we, we have different branches, so I think you could get support for that. The other thing I think you can try and do is find a way, this is a little bit harder of a, of a push, um, you could find a way for Congress to more clearly define what they mean by hostilities and what they mean by both imperfect and perfect war. So if you look way, 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 way back into the 19th century, you see that Congress really did seriously engage with questions about what a hostility was. So, you know, if their military fired on our military. Is that really hostile? Well, only if it was sanctioned by the government, if it was a you know rogue general, then we shouldn't really say that those are hostilities from a certain country, that kind of thing. And so, you know, having a, a more serious conversation about what those different terms mean, I think would be very helpful when presidents kind of unilaterally decide, okay, I'm going to go and bomb, you know, Obama bombed Libya very unilaterally in 2011 and then somewhat unilaterally bombed Syria in 2014. So I think that could work. The The presidency, I don't think, is going to... I don't think it's just to ask the president to give back powers, um, because that's, in, that's a level of morality that most of us can't aspire to, right? And on top of that, I could make the argument that like Carter tried to do it, and that turned out terribly for him. So it may not work. Uh, the next thing you could talk about is public opinion. Uh, One of the things I often say to my students and when I give lectures is that what we might need in the United States is just better voters. And I don't mean let's throw out the Americans who are here. I just mean that Americans aren't focused on getting Congress to do the kinds of things that would check presidents, that would really get policy passed. What they're rewarding congressmen for doing is playing shirts and skins, right? So are you just voting with Republicans? Are you just supporting a Republican president? Great. Check mark. I'm sending you back to Washington. Are you just voting with Democrats? Are you just supporting Democratic presidents? Great. I'm sending you back to Washington. So if Americans had a better sense that we actually need some unity and some sense of togetherness to, to craft good policy, both domestically and in foreign policy spheres, that I think would go a long way in improving Congress in general, and then the government at the federal level. Uh, The next thing on a foreign scale is that 
Um, what are the reasons you see the Obama administration pulling back a little bit in the the global war on terror is that they had this perspective that the problem is in Islam and therefore the solution is in Islam. So in other words, the more the Western powers try and impose themselves on these opposing ideas, the more Western powers are going to look like the enemy and the more they're going to probably fight back. So conversely, if you say to Islamic nations in general, um, you know, you guys have a problem with radicalism. This is a problem for Islamic nations or for nations that are trying to combat this issue. It is not a problem for Westerners or the United States in particular to come in and fix. That may then heal itself in a very, very long-term way. So the, the analogy you could possibly look to is the religious wars between Protestants and Catholics in Europe. And there were bloody, terrible wars for years and years and years. And so again, you can make an analogy, it's not a perfect one, between uh, Sunni and Shia and say, you know, part of the sectarian violence stems from having a lot of similarities, but a few differences that some people are very, very passionate about, which is an underwhelming way to say that people are willing to kill each other. But uh, <laughs> because... Uh, because they feel so strongly, right? It's It's got to be true that if you are willing to kill someone else for your belief, that you feel them very deeply. Um, it's possible, therefore, that you should see a drawing back of Western powers trying to impose certain values on a variety of countries. And that may long-term heal the problem, but you might short-term have a lot more violence, potentially. I'm not really sure. So the last thing that I would say that's very controversial that likely wouldn't get passed, but would likely solve a lot of these problems is reinstating the draft and having the draft be both for men and women. And the reason why is that currently what you have in the United States is something of a military caste. If you look at the people who go into the military and the people who um, stay in the military, they're often from military families themselves and, you know, many, many generations of military families as well. And that means that roughly one or 2% of the American population is either in the military or touched by military affairs, whereas the rest of the 99 or 98% don't really spend a lot of time around those things. If conversely, everyone knew that, you know, their, their kids would potentially be going to Iraq or Afghanistan the American public would be much more alive to concerns and questions about foolish or unnecessary wars. And like I said, that's a big lift and a very controversial one. But if you're looking for the big solution to the big problem, I think that's probably um, an unrealistic but effective one. Right. I think what what you say there, like leaving aside whether like that, that, as you correctly said, would be a topic unto itself for an episode. So leaving that there and not getting into whether or not I disagree or agree with that or, or your elaboration sure. on it. I just want everyone listening to know that obviously that would be a huge one and we're not avoiding it by any means, but we are running out of time. But but I think one thing that's very important there that you brought up is true, regardless about the, the solution, is certainly that the, the military ultimately, like you said, that lifestyle and the impacts of it is uh, restricted to a certain class of people. That is simply true. Yeah. So, again, regardless of the of the solution that, that that you did present, which we don't have enough time to get into, that is that is certainly true. And I could certainly see how that that would impact a lot of people's perspective on it. And, and on the flip side, that's why ninety eight percent, as you threw out there, uh, of the population might be also a little more. Uh, have a little bit more of a casual attitude if they're voting for a war, like you were saying, right? Like it's like, oh, okay, well, it's not directly impacting them, right? We'll just send some people over there that will start shooting people, right? Well, you're right. I mean, you, f you feel less of an impact of that if you don't have any connection to that military apparatus whatsoever. So that's simply true. Mm -hmm. And I think an, an excellent point there. Um, we, we are just about out of time here. So let's let's wrap it up the way we always do here. So I definitely want to give you the, the final thoughts and the parting words. So we always wrap it up like this. I'm going to throw it right back at you. Ultimately, what, what do you hope are the main takeaways here for someone listening to your opinions on uh, whether or not American foreign policy is broken? That was our initial question. And also uh, how we can go about solving that. Again, I know it's unfair to sort of give you the last <laughs> word and say summarize everything. But but if we could do our best, what, what would you hope the main sticking points here would be? I think it's a great way to end a podcast. So I would try and focus on the the differentiation between the formal system, the the constitutional system as it was set up, 
and the informal system that's kind of been imposed on top of it. And I think when people think through how uh, disordered things are, understanding that those two things are operating side by side or on top of each other uncomfortably, that that's why it is you see bad policy, a very large unilateral executive, a very supine Congress. And we didn't have a lot of time for the courts, but essentially courts tend to stay out of what are called political questions. Finally, I think it's important on a, on a hopeful note to say that structurally the system has survived for a very long time. And while there's this new informal structure on top of it, and there's a lot of complexity, and the world's a fairly scary place, we see the institution still working fairly effectively. And we see that in Congress providing a good deal of oversight on the Trump presidency. We see the courts weighing in fairly regularly. And whether or not you agree with what what Congress is looking at, or how Trump is reacting, or what Trump is doing, the system is actually working, right? Not perfectly, not all the time, and it's ugly and partisan, but it is true that that's what it's supposed to do, essentially, is that we have these branches working in tandem, not happily (laughs) and with a lot of fighting. And unfortunately, liberal democracy is a very hard system. It's a very difficult thing to keep going. And moderate institutions like the ones we have do kind of stretch a little bit on occasion. And so what we're seeing now is a stretching of them But I wouldn't think or I don't think that it's good for your listeners to believe that the system is broken. It's just currently the foreign policy structure is a little bit broken and we need to fix it. But the whole system is not itself completely broken. And there's a way to salvage it. I think that's a great way to end it. Sarah Burns, thank you so much for uh, speaking with me today on The Curious Task. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 